everyone. Welcome back to Songs on the Brain with Phoenix Heart. Today, I'm going to be sharing you guys the fascinating discussion I had with Dr. Michael Yogman, a pediatrician based in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Um, he's been doing some really interesting research about the importance of play and how pediatricians uh, have a really crucial role in enhancing the development of children, and how also it is important to nurture relationships with the caregivers and the parents so that children can thrive, and really ultimately that play is not frivolous, it's crucial to cognitive development and learning, and anyway, I found this conversation super inspiring and it really kind of rekindled my desire to pursue medicine potentially in the future, and more specifically to even be studying pediatrics as I really love children and care about the well-being of children so much. So yeah, uh, this discussion was so inspiring, so, so inspiring. Thank you again, Dr. Yogman, for taking the time to chat. And yeah, let's jump right in the questions. All right, I wanted to discuss a bit your journey as to becoming a pediatrician and just understanding, you know, was there any really formative experiences you had in university that informed that decision or was it something that you knew you wanted to do from a young age? Well, yeah, starting way back, I mean, I, I think I always wanted to be a physician and mm -hmm. I was always interested in the intersection of uh, the brain and behavior. Um, and, uh, um, and uh, you know, I uh, had a lot of, uh, went to med school at Yale and had a lot of contact with people at the Child Study Center, which was very engaged in that uh, area, and um, thought a lot about whether my uh, career path would be in child psychiatry or in pediatrics, and decided for a host of reasons that pediatrics was a better fit for me. One was that uh, I really enjoyed uh, the uh, uh, clinical fact that kids usually get better, um, and that was uh, very, uh, um, you know, uh, very attractive. I, I remember a uh, uh, one child I saw in the emergency room with asthma, who uh, not knowing at all, but uh, but knowing that uh, uh, epinephrine would help him breathe in those days. Uh, um, you know, he basically, by the time his blood gases came back and were terrible, he was already sitting up talking and. And doing well, so it was the uh, the combination of the uh, fact that I felt like I could really do some good for kids. Um, but I think in addition to that, um, the uh, ability to combine uh, advances in brain neuroscience and behavior uh, was also very attractive. And the fact that uh, we we're on the cusp of some real breakthroughs in infant mental health and infant development, and you'll see how that became a major part of my career. And then finally was the political side, that there were so many opportunities for advocacy for child social policy. So that was also a, uh, a major driver. So at the end of my uh, pediatric training at Yale, uh, I moved up to Boston and worked with a, uh, uh, a wonderful person whose uh, uh, career was just taken off like a rocket ship, uh, Dr. T. Barry Brazelton. And, uh, so I basically worked with Dr. Brazelton for over 30 years uh, and started to really get into uh, 
uh, doing research, both on newborn behavior, on uh, 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 the interaction, for example, of uh, neurotransmitters in sleep, uh, and uh, then looking at premature infants and, and the way we could intervene to improve their outcomes in a randomized national trial. Um, and, uh, you know, and then after uh, many years doing the full-time academic uh, uh, work, uh, I uh, went into private practice, but continued my advocacy. I became board chair. I joined the board of the Boston Children's Museum, eventually became board chair, became very interested in uh, uh, the role of play uh, in child development. My earlier research had been uh, a lot about parent-infant interaction, particularly father-infant relationships, um, and then moved on to uh, uh, thinking about uh, play. Um, and so that's perhaps what we want to focus on in this conversation. Um, yeah, exactly. That's That was kind of uh, the next thing I wanted to ask was where that idea of prescribing play uh, came from? Was it something that you noticed was lacking when you were seeing your patients in cl in your clinic? Uh, or did it spark from other research that you read? Well, it, it, it was a perfect storm. Uh, I began, obviously became very interested in play as we were developing exhibits at the Boston Children's Museum um, and saw the uh, way kids from different socioeconomic strata could play together, and we called it leveling the sandbox, um, so that uh, uh, that led me to think about this as a possible more social intervention. Um, and then when I uh, uh, began to think about my role as a pediatrician and to think about what was happening in our uh, in our culture, I think play was really in grave jeopardy. Uh, kids were, uh, I can quote you some data here, but uh, uh, there was a huge decrease in playtime over the past 25 years. 30% of kindergartners no longer had recess. Only 50% of preschoolers went outside with parents to walk or play because of concerns about safety. Uh, you know, social media was beginning to rear its ugly head and Kids were uh, were spending more time on uh, on iPads and iPhones than they were uh, playing and talking to each other. Um, so, and parents were overscheduling kids with after school enrichment activities. So, play seemed like uh, a good antidote. And then I began to so I I uh, first promulgated this idea of pediatricians writing a prescription for play when we were uh, celebrating the 100th anniversary of the Boston Children's Museum, we did a symposium at the Federal Reserve Bank of Boston and had uh, national leaders speaking. And I first presented the idea of a prescription for play at all pediatric well visits. And uh, that got uh, a lot of buzz. And as a result of that, I uh, was chairing one of the National Academy committees on uh, psycho psychosocial aspects of childcare and uh, wrote the paper, in, which was finally published in 2018 on the power of play, in which the National Academy of Pediatrics endorsed the concept that pediatricians write a prescription for play at all well visits. And I had been noticing in my office, seeing patients regularly, that uh, you know while kids were playing in the waiting room, what made a world of difference 
if they were frightened about vaccines or about the exam, if I pulled out a hand puppet or a bubble wand, I could actually uh, make it a much more enjoyable visit, both for the child and the parents. And so uh, this paper led me to delve uh, much deeper into the neuroscience. And uh, I basically uh, uh, made the, uh, uh, the point that play is not frivolous, that it's brain building, and it influences the prefrontal cortex, the hippocampus, dendritic complexity, neuronal growth factor, a lot of good neuroscience data, mostly from animals, but extrapolated, uh, and talked about its uh, way that it promoted skills, most notably executive function. And I began concerned that uh, a lot of kids who were distractible and had trouble keeping up with schoolwork, rather than just uh, uh, putting them on stimulant medication for ADD, a lot of them could be helped with executive function skills, working on problem solving and uh uh, and task persistence and revolving this, resolving disputes with words. And so uh, play became a way to promote that kind of cooperative play and executive function. And we began to see data, mostly from my colleague Kathy Hirsch-Pasek's lab at Temple, on uh, the way uh, there were different kinds of play. There was free play, and there's a lot of interest in free, free play uh, giving kids more autonomy, more sense of agency, and that might mitigate uh, some of the issues, the mental health issues. But uh, uh, we became interested in guided play, which is still child-directed, meaningful, joyful, but uh, parents can introduce a learning goal. And that became a very exciting intervention in urban environments uh, all across the nation of the globe. And so we developed a nonprofit called Playful Learning Landscapes Action Network, in which we've worked with uh, communities around the country, and in fact, even in Brazil and Tel Aviv, uh, to create installations in libraries, in playgrounds, in bus stops, in supermarkets, where during everyday activities, you know, parents passing an aisle with apples could, instead of having the kid have a temper tantrum about sitting in the shopping cart, could talk to them about counting apples, could talk to them about what animals give milk at the milk counter, uh, could play hopscotch with lights reflected on the ground at bus stops, and could develop safe playgrounds with uh, communities so engaged that they protected these playgrounds in some of the most high-risk urban neighborhoods in Philadelphia, with puzzles on the wall, hopscotch on the floor, Lots of these learning activities that, uh, and demonstrating that after uh, repeated opportunities, kids were improving in language development. Parents were off their cell phones. Kids' cognitive development was improving. Um, and so, and their social emotional skills were improving. So that's been a, uh, a, a new board that I'm chairing. And it's been a very exciting, uh, uh, way to follow up with the, uh, with prescriptions for play, because we're now also trying to uh, develop these installations in pediatric waiting rooms and hospital waiting rooms uh, and in uh, in uh, more healthcare settings. So that's probably a wow. lot. Yeah. Know. No, but uh, it's really incredible. At, you know, and it's like you're saying, instead of 
you know, a, a child throwing a tantrum or just a parent handing them, you know, as you say, with the rise of technology, handing them a phone just to play a game. It's it's developing skills and, you know, while still the parents are able to accomplish things that they need to do, such as, you know, grocery shopping or going from place to place. And, and it's um, flexible. It doesn't require parents necessarily committing a half hour. Exactly. They can fit it in, you know, walking the dog, going to the store, mm-hmm. uh, going to the laundromat. Um, and, you know, when you talk about reading to your child, which obviously is critical, yeah. um, you can make that playful by pausing and asking the child to then embellish the story and pretend mm. have different scenarios about what happens to the character in the story. So there are all kinds of ways to create flexibility and no need for parents to go out and buy expensive toys. Yeah. Household objects are fine. Wooden spoons, plastic leftover dishes, mm-hmm. uh, you know, cardboard boxes can become forts and play spaces. Yeah. Uh, all of these things are everyday objects around the house. Totally. Um, and I'm really curious, I guess, to understand how this would unfold in your practice. Like it, when you have patients and their families that come to see you, like how do you assess what kind of play you want to prescribe and or like prescribe or, you know? Yeah, I mean, I think what I'm mainly doing is validating what's already happening. So I'll look for a moment in the office where the parent and child are doing something joyful or discovering something, even, you know, the child's exploring the otoscope. And uh, I'll highlight that and say, look what your child is learning. Let's talk about the different aspects of, uh, of sensory motor experience, of, uh, of curiosity that is happening. And uh, highlight how important it is to their development. And I don't think that's something that parents hear a lot. Um, it's validating what they're doing. And then, you know, when one is not, uh, or in addition to what's seeing in the actual office visit, one can ask about, gee, what have you noticed at home in the past week that your child was curious about or discovering or, or joyful? So the aspects of play that are, uh, uh, you know, there, there are certain characteristics of play that we really want to highlight it uh, um, is uh, uh, meaningful, it's iterative, it's uh, uh, joyful, it's social. So again, it's uh, uh, often has to be either playing with peers or playing with adults, um, that, that social interaction. So kids just playing in an isolated way, you know, has some uh, valence in terms of uh, having them uh, develop creative ways to do things. But I think the social interactive part of it is really critical. Um, And there's also a quote that I found really interesting that you said was that kids develop 21st century skills through play. Um, Could you expand on that? Yes, very much so. The uh, uh, one of the uh, interesting um, surveys of corporate CEOs several years ago asked what kinds of skill sets they were looking for in the future workforce. And they were less concerned about, uh, uh, you know, IQ and uh, math skills. They knew that the future lay in people learning to be creative, to cooperate, to problem solve together, and to collaborate. And those were the kind of skills that play cultivates. Um, And they're... uh, so it gives us some pushback uh, after the uh, uh, 
learning loss in the pandemic to say to schools that to think you can just increase the stress load on kids with uh, hammering them with information and think that that's going to solve the learning loss in the pandemic without addressing the social emotional skills, the, the loss of connection that they've had uh, as a result of the pandemic. Those are the skills that I think that are going to help them learn to solve problems, to be creative, to think outside the box that are going to be sure they need the uh, the basic learning uh, skills as well. But you need to package it for the whole child and not just parse only the uh, uh, drilling and killing with uh, multiplication tables and uh, and phonics. Mm -hmm. And I mean, parents play an incredible, you know, an incredibly important role in, in play. I mean, they're the ones that decide what the child is going to do, you know, what activities they're involved in. And you were saying how you were like very fascinated with the father infant relationship. Could you just explain a bit more like why that specifically? Well, um, for one thing, I think, uh, fathers have gotten the, uh, the, the short end of the lollipop stick. The uh, they're actually very capable of of uh, being very uh, uh, sensitive and competently involved with babies as young as three months. We did some early studies of microscopic, you know, uh, analysis of videotaped interactions, and fathers could uh, engage their infants very successfully, matching their rhythms. Um, the uh, but they did it in a slightly different way. It was much more uh, vigorous, arousing. The baby would sit upright in the chair, wide-eyed, laughing. Um, and you play that out, and fathers tended to be the preferred play partner with toddlers and with older kids. And that's a really important role. I mean, you know, both parents play, but fathers tended to do it in a little different way, more rough and tumble, more uh, uh, kind of vigorous play. And... If you think about the needs of development uh, for kids, there are, uh, you know, two uh, uh, two paths of development. One is to be protective and nurturant and make the baby feel, you know, totally secure, and that's critical. But the other part is to push the baby a little bit so that they learn to cope with adversity a little bit, with with you know, limited degree of adversity. They learn to problem solve. They learn to discover. They learn to explore. And so I think there's a role for both aspects in development. And I think fathers can play an important role there. It reminded me, I'll come back to it, but the uh, it was something I wanted to come back to about play, but I'll, I'll, I'll get to it. It'll, it'll come back to me in a minute. Okay, no worries. I kind of wanted to touch also on creative play you know like it doesn't necessarily yeah, have to be that, music yeah that was one of the things the other thing i wanted to emphasize about play is that uh and this is very important uh life is stressful for all people but but for some kids it's really stressful you know they just don't uh have uh you know poverty compounded um and uh what we know is that one of the best buffers for stress are relationships, safe, secure, nurturing relationships. And play is a way to facilitate that. 
when kids are playing with other kids, when kids are playing with parents um, in a safe, secure way, I think that play is a way to buffer adversity and to buffer stress. And so that's a really important, uh, it promotes mm-hmm. those safe, stable, nurturing relationships. Mm-hmm. So that was one point I want to make. The other point I want to make was back to your point about creativity. Yes. So this links to your broader agenda. Yes. And play uh, is not just play with objects. It's uh, going outside, exploring nature, getting kids to realize the impact of climate change. So, you know, looking at plants, uh, exploring insects, frogs. Uh, But uh, kids have multiple intelligences, and we don't want to shortchange any of them. There are kids that love drawing, that love music, back to your broader agenda. And that can be very playful. And I think that those are the kinds of opportunities we want to make sure all kids experience so that the uh, the kids that have particular intelligences in art and music and uh, 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 in areas like that are uh, are not deprived of the opportunity to experience some of the joy of those opportunities. Mm-hmm. And so has has the arts or music or, yeah, it could be, you know, visual arts or music, uh, has that been something that you've suggested to children or to parents that that comes to you with certain difficulties? Like, I guess I kind of better want to understand the dynamic of like how you prescribe per se. Like, is it that there's like a specific medical issue and then you're like, you suggest something to help with that or it's... Yeah, prescribing more, is a bit more of a metaphor. Yeah, that's, I guess what I'm trying to understand. Yeah, it's more of a metaphor than a directive. So it's... Got it. Basically, broadening the agenda for the visit with the parents. So mm-hmm. we'll talk about, gee, what what else is your child interested in? What have you, what have they experienced? What have you exposed them to? What are the grandparents doing? What are their interests? Mm-hmm. Um, to try to engage the entire family. And, you know, maybe there is some hidden musical talent or artistic talent in the family and uh, if so, you want to make sure the child uh, is exposed to that. Um, so it's not so much, as I say, the prescription is not directive. It's mainly saying, let's explore the opportunities for your whole child. And let's think about what they're doing, not just in school, but outside school. Mm-hmm. What are they doing with their friends? What what are they doing with uh, with their, you know, with you, with uh other families with grandparents um have they uh, you know unfortunately schools are increasingly cutting back on music and art and that's uh uh to everyone's detriment so often parents have to kind of find opportunities for that on their own but you mm-hmm. know just giving a kid a piece of paper and some crayons can often unmask all kinds of hidden talent yeah Giving a, a child a uh, uh, a pot and a uh, wooden spoon to bang on can under uh, unmask some hidden rhythmic abilities. Mm-hmm. So one never knows. But these That's are really simple, true. simple opportunities that parents want to provide for their children. Mm-hmm. Um, and earlier you were emphasizing on like social play, so how play is really important because it helps build relationships with others, either with peers or with their parents. But I remember also reading something in the article about like pretend play alone, 
Um, and like, do you see value in that as well? I mean, I remember like I'm, I have older, like half siblings that are a lot older. So for like the large majority of my childhood, I was kind of an only child at home. And, you know, I would like make up a lot of games, you know, in my room, just, you know, well, the, the hanging with my <laughs> stuffed animals. And, you know, I would pretend to be Absolutely. a vet, a veterinarian. And I guess, is that also something that you see yeah. like, that you value? So, like, for as example, well? uh, if parents are on the phone, you know, kids will often pick up a banana. And talk to the bananas. Banana phone. <laughs> when mothers are vacuuming, the child with a toy vacuum can. Uh, so there's lots of the, the pretend play, the dress-up play, the using a cardboard, uh, a carton as a fourth. Uh, there are lots of these things that kids can uh, can do, uh, you know, on their own. And, uh, uh, you know, parents can without interrupting what they're doing because they can comment on it they can uh, compliment the child on what they're doing or or maybe even the child gets stuck provide a little uh a little help just getting over a hurdle or an alternative uh 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 you know they get the vacuum stuck in the corner and they can help them turn it around yeah exactly what does that alone time, that pretend play alone time develop uh, compared to like the more social play, would you say? Well, I think it it uh, cultivates imagination mm. and, uh, uh, and, uh, and creativity. I mean, when, uh, when kids uh, dress up and uh, role play different, uh, different figures, I mean, they're uh, being very creative uh, in terms of their uh, choice of what they're doing. And I think there uh, there is a degree of problem solving that kids, it's not just the pretend play, but they're, they're problem solving on their own as well. And uh, developing a sense of competence, a sense of, uh, of uh, accomplishing things. And uh, there is, you know, some interest now that... Uh, Kids are now so overprotected that they're they're kind of you know kind of imbued with anxiety about doing anything on their own. You know, they're not allowed to uh, to go outside to play, and you know that's there's a cost to that. For sure, for sure. Um, also, I I saw that you are involved in, at the medical school at Harvard, um, are you teaching there or are you just like, are you on the board or what is? Yeah, no, I'm, uh, uh, I teach, uh, both medical students and residents. Okay. Amazing. I try, uh, students vary, but I remember I had one wonderful student last year who, uh, was totally, uh, I, I try to emphasize the power of the trusted relationship that a pediatrician has with a parent. Mm. And that requires kind of continuity over time. Uh, and having been in practice for over 30 years, you know, I was sometimes on my second or third generation of kids. So I knew those families over a long period of time. Yeah. That's the level of trust. And I think that was an important construct that I try to convey to students that you can't have credibility when suggesting recommendations if they don't trust you to begin with. Mm. Um, and so, uh, that was one thing. And then getting to know the kids and being able to talk about uh, 
uh, joy and uh, and other activities as opposed to just uh, uh, talking about deficits and what's wrong with your child as opposed to uh, what are you enjoying about your child today? It's a very different uh, model of care to talk about strengths as opposed to deficits. So those were uh, the kinds of things I would try to convey to the students. Wow, that, that's really that's really cool. <laughs> um, could you tell me also a bit more about what your what courses you're teaching? Are you teaching this semester, or what the courses you were teaching uh, last year? Yeah, the most of the uh, uh, teaching I do is is mentoring, is mm. individual uh, mentoring and tutoring. In the past, I've taught a number of uh, courses and lectures on uh, early child development, on infant mental health, mm-hmm. uh, on uh, uh, lectured widely on play, on the father-child relationship. But, mm-hmm. uh, but those are usually isolated lectures. The coursework is mostly just, uh, you know, mentoring uh, mentoring students. And have you, I mean, you, you said you incorporated certain, you know, elements about the trust. Um, have you also talked about the play uh, yes. in your, in your mentoring? Yeah. So again, in the context as they're sitting in during a visit, well, uh, if a child becomes, uh, you know, stressed about vaccines or about the exam, mm-hmm. we use the hand puppet or bubbles or other yeah. things like that to, uh, uh, to kind of, calm things down and mm-hmm. win the child's trust as well as the parents. Mm-hmm. Um, and so now, like moving forward, um, you were talking about the different things that you were setting up, like in other countries, uh, in the grocery stores, on the street, you know, like the hopscotch. Um, where do you see, I guess, this going moving forward? Um yeah. Yeah, I think mean, it's, I it's pretty exciting to work with uh, with communities. Uh, Philadelphia is the most uh, uh, forward uh, uh, move forward most uh, notably in this area, uh, where not only playgrounds but uh, hospital waiting rooms and and uh, places around the city are really seeing opportunities for parents and kids to not only play, but to learn at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, uh, I think the critical thing there is to work with an individual, with community leaders, and to see what their goals and needs are so that one doesn't, it's not top down. It's very much mm. driven from what the community sees as gaps in their services. And then we're working with uh, urban planners, with architects, with developmental psychologists and pediatricians. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, looking at opportunities in housing projects and libraries and supermarkets, uh, in everyday places where, uh, we think we can impact, uh, parents realize the importance of reading, of singing, of, uh, of physical play, of pretend play with their kids. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, so far it's it's uh, it's been a very receptive response from uh, Dayton, Ohio, Santana, California, Chicago, uh, Philadelphia, as I mentioned, uh, uh, Tel Aviv, and uh, uh, Brazil. Amazing. Um, 
And so in Susan Maxman's uh, new book, Your Brain on Art, that's where I read about, you know, your your research on arts and play. Um, she calls it social prescribing. Um, could you speak a bit on that term and what it means to you? Yeah. Well, I think that's the uh, social prescribing or, or thinking about the whole child mm. um, is, you know, we're not prescribing a medicine to treat a disease. Mm. We're kind of trying to embellish the world that the child lives in uh, to encompass play, to encompass art, to encompass music, to encompass uh, all the uh, the social needs of the child. And, uh, you know, medicine is in a funny place. It's like critical that we uh, address uh, the, uh, the social determinants of health, they're called. So it's poverty and hunger and housing assistance. Um, and that's critical, but again, it's identifying deficits and we need to provide solutions to the deficits in people's uh, uh, existence because those things obviously have a major impact on health. But I think we need to give people some positive uh, things to build on their strengths and to see what uh, uh, what kind of supports we can give them to do things uh, that will broaden their their life, and so I think social prescribing has to encompass both. Uh, you know, solving the problems and the deficits, but also uh, providing the social skills, emphasizing the uh, uh, the importance of uh, of even of uh, of faith based groups and community groups uh, coming together to support families. Mm-hmm. I mean, God knows we uh, we don't do very well as a culture expecting families just to operate on their own with very little impact. And yeah. you know, we're we're uh, at the bottom of the list in terms of uh, industrialized nations and how much we uh, uh, provide, you know, community support for child raising. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess lastly, just kind of looking ahead as someone who's considering, you know, medicine, pediatrics, like really interested in behavior and brain, do you have any advice on like any advice for me? Um, Well, I think just the fact that we're having this conversation (laughs) uh, indicates to me that you're very invested in the whole child and that you're, uh, and that's got to be the future of pediatrics. It's Mm got to be, you know, it's not only going to be more beneficial for the families you take care of, but it's going to be joyful for you. I mean, you know, you don't want to spend uh, your life as a pediatrician just, uh, um, you know, identifying problems, making diagnoses, writing medications, and giving shots. That's not going to make you feel like you've, uh, uh, you've really had an enjoyable day. Yeah, and I think your uh, uh, this conversation about play and art and music in kids' lives are what is going to uh, really provide the uh, the greatest opportunity for the kids to be the most productive citizens, which is our goal as pediatricians to mm-hmm. raise a, a new generation of uh, of of uh, educated, uh, uh, you know, happy 
uh, and uh, and competent citizens. Amazing. Well, thanks so much. I think that that covers it. <laughs> Good. Well, it's delightful talking with you. And uh, yes. Thank you so much again, Dr. Yogman, for taking the time to chat. I really had such a great time learning about uh, your research and learning about pediatrics and the importance of play. And I hope everyone else enjoyed our discussion as well. I will talk to you all very soon for another episode of Songs on the Brain. Have a good week. Mm-hmm.